0: All right, folks, welcome to a new edition of John Solomon Reports. It is Tuesday in America, and the coronavirus has us all gripped in its clutch. The American response has been amazing. We're shutting down in big places. We're volunteering. We're cooperating. We have bipartisanship. We have straight talk. We have economic aid. We've got a market that's rolling but also listening. It knows that the uh, uh, fundamentals of the American economy are strong, and we will get through this. So today, we've got a very special edition. I like to call it the coronavirus special edition. We're going to have some amazing guests today. Two of my colleagues, two great reporters, Christine Dolan and the incomparable Cheryl Atkinson join us. They've broken some big stories at Just the News that give people the facts, not the alarmism, not the panic, not the hyperventilation, not the exaggeration. Two great reporters who broke really important stories that put the coronavirus uh, outbreak into perspective, the potential course of treatment on our map, and helping us understand who's vulnerable and who's not in the early going of this evolving outbreak. Um, And while we're on the question of sickness, I'm going to talk a little bit about the continued evidence that showed what plagued our Justice Department and FBI during the Russia uh, investigation, the collusion investigation. I have a brand new exclusive story That shows that in private, the Obama administration was saying something in public they weren't. They had concerns about the way Mike Flynn was being treated privately, even while they were pillorying him in public. You're not going to want to miss that. We're going to be back in a few seconds. First, we're going to go to commercial break. When we come back, I'm going to talk about that Russia scoop. And then an unprecedented conversation with two great reporters, Christine Dolan and Cheryl Atkinson. Stay tuned. You're not going to want to miss this. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. And a reminder, in just a few minutes, we're going to have two extraordinary reporters back-to-back from just the news. That's Christine Dolan and Cheryl Atkinson. They had some of the biggest, best stories that we offered our readers this week so far on the coronavirus uh, scare, the epidemic, the pandemic. Uh, They gave us facts and a very important perspective that was missing elsewhere in the media. And you're going to want to hear their first-hand stories. They have a lot to say. And they'll explain some of the data that they're learning about death rates, about emerging uh, treatments, and uh, many other good things. But before we get to that, I want to first start off uh, with another sickness that continues to grow in terms of its proportion. And that is what we're learning was going on inside the Obama Justice Department, the early Trump Justice Department, during the Russia collusion case. We already know everything that went wrong with the FISA, right? Right. We've seen two of the four FISA's against Carter Page withdrawn, but we have brand new evidence in a story I broke today uh, that uh, divulges exactly what the Obama administration was saying behind closed doors to Robert Mueller, the former DOJ officials who started the Russia investigation, signed some of those early FISA warrants, and were still running the Justice Department in the early days of President Trump's presidency. Uh, They have an extraordinary story, but to appreciate What was going on publicly versus what they were saying privately? Let's stop for a second and listen to this soundbite. This is Sally Yates, the former acting attorney general. She was in charge of the Justice Department for a brief period of time in January 2017 as President Trump was taking after President Obama left office. And this is an interview she gave back in May of 2017 to the CNN uh, group led by Anderson Cooper Listen to what she said about Mike Flynn and the Russians' leverage over him. This is a great soundbite. You probably heard it before, but listen to it again because it's going to set up what I'm about to tell you next.
1: The gist of it is pretty simple, is that if they have information that they can use to as leverage over someone, then they will use that. And they even have a word for it, compromise. And in this situation, we had both the underlying conduct that was problematic for General Flynn, but then... The public misrepresentations about it that were based on lies that General Flynn had told the vice president and others. And the combination of that is absolutely information that the Russians can use as leverage with General Flynn, who was the national security advisor, like the last person in the world that you would want for the Russians to have leverage over.
0: All right, you just heard that. In May of 2017, Sally Yates, who by that time had been fired by President Trump, told CNN She thought that Mike Flynn was compromised by the Russians, that his lying uh, uh, and the lie that was alleged was that he knew that he had talked to the Russian ambassador about Russian sanctions, but he didn't tell the the truth about that to Vice President Mike Mike Pence or others. That's the lie. Uh, But that, that lie had compromised him, that he was compromise material for the Russians. That's her claim in that interview. Now, let's fast forward a couple of months later. I have obtained portions of a letter that special counsel Mueller's team sent the Mike Flynn defense team in 2018. And in there, there are mentions and summaries of interviews by several former Obama DOJ Justice Department officials, uh, and one of them is Sally Yates. Now, behind closed doors, not when the CNN cameras are running, but behind closed doors, Sally Yates told this to the uh, Mueller team. You got to listen. This is really what uh, she said. Yates received a brief readout of an interview on January 24, 2017, and a longer readout the following day. This was after Mike Flynn was interviewed. The gist of what she was told was that Flynn was very accommodating, but the agents had not confronted him directly. He was nudged at one point, and he said something like, oh, thank you for reminding me. Flynn denied having a conversation about sanctions. uh, Yates did not speak to the interviewing agents herself, but understood from others that the interviewing agents' assessment was that Flynn showed... No tells of lying, and it was just possible he really did not remember the substance of his calls with Ambassador Kisiak. That is an extraordinary statement. What she said in public was he was lying in such a way to be compromised, but behind closed doors, she was telling Mueller that uh, the FBI agents had determined Flynn wasn't lying, most likely just simply didn't remember the conversation. Now, there's more. Yates has another part of the interview that's summarized in this Mueller letter. I'm going to read it to you now. She also had problems with the fact that the FBI went to the White House, did not give uh, Flynn a warning that he was being interviewed in conjunction with a criminal investigation, that that troubled her. Let me read that as well. During an SEO interview, SEO stands for Special Counsel Office. So during an SEO interview of former Acting Attorney General Sally Yates, Yates said that on January 24th, 2017, Comey advised Yates that two FBI agents were on their way to interview Flynn. The interview was problematic for Yates from Yates' perspective, because as a matter of protocol and courtesy, the White House Counsel's Office should have been notified beforehand. Yates relayed that the FBI previously had sent the notification, said the notification would mess up an ongoing investigation. All right, so in the CNN interview, Mike Flynn is a compromised national security advisor, but behind closed doors, Sally Yates said... I think he got mistreated by the FBI. They sandbagged him. They didn't give him the normal notification. Now, she's not the only one to raise that question. There were other officials who said they thought it was inappropriate that Flynn had not been advised of his rights. Normally, when FBI agents are interviewing someone in a criminal investigation, they let them know that they can be charged with false statements. If they don't tell the truth, Flynn was not given that warning. And one of Yates deputies told Mueller, I was concerned about that as well. But let me give you another one that's important. If you remember around that time in the February to May timeframe when Flynn was forced to resign in January 2017, I'm sorry, February of 2017, the accusation started in January 17. The resignation occurred in February. By May, there's a special counsel named. These The special counsel starts talking to all these justice officials. And there was one big story floating out there that Mike Flynn's... Uh, contact with uh, the Russian Ambassador Sergei Kislyak might have violated an obscure law known as the Logan Act. No one ever heard of the Logan Act before Mike Flynn. But there are all these stories being leaked out of the Justice Department, out of the FBI, on banner headlines and in newscasts that Mike Flynn was in danger of being prosecuted under the Logan Act. Now, that's what was a public story being floated in the media. And I'm going to read you uh, a little segment of an interview that Mary McCord, the former acting Ass- assistant attorney general for national security, what she told Bob Mueller's team when she got behind closed doors. This is very important uh, because it goes to the heart of what we were sold as a story in the 2017 timeframe. Almost none of it was true. Listen to what Mary McCord had to say. According to the Mueller letter sent to the Flynn defense lawyers, Quote, McCord said that upon learning of Flynn's phone calls with Ambassador Kislyak, a Logan Act prosecution seemed like a stretch to her. All right. One of the senior Justice Department officials in the country thinks this idea of charging Mike Flynn with the Logan Act was a stretch. And that's not the only place. In, in a later interview, the former deputy director of the FBI, Andrew McCabe, yep, you know his name well, he said, yeah, justice officials were very, very concerned and dubious about the uh, Logan Act being used against Flynn. All right, so let's get this straight. In the public storyline that caused a scandal for President Trump, the, Mike Flynn had lied in such a way that he was compromised by the Russians and that he was in danger of being charged with the Logan Act. And that's why he was resigned, cr- forced to resign, why he was criminally prosecuted, why he was vilified in the media. Now, that's the official story played out through CNN, The Washington Post, New York Times, all the media. Now, behind closed doors, what did you find out from those same Obama officials? Actually, the FBI told us they didn't think that Mike Flynn was lying. He showed no telltale signs of it. And we didn't think the Logan Act had a, a chance in heck It's sticking on him. What a difference. And that shows why, as reporters, we need to keep digging into this Russia scandal Everything, or almost everything, we were told in January, February, March of 17, all the way through the summer and fall, it is not checking out. When you get the actual documents, you see that uh, what was being said behind closed doors, what the evidence was, was far different than the narrative that had been crafted by the Obama administration and their allies in the news media. These documents are very troubling. If you go to justthenews.com, you'll see my complete story. You can read all the quotes. You'll see exactly what I'm saying. But as we look at this and as we are going through the midst of this coronavirus crisis, which is real, and that we got to pay attention to and and follow and do our part as Americans to keep the virus from spreading, we still have to treat and address the virus that infected our Justice Department and our FBI, the false statements and false portraits that were be given to the American public through the media, through leaks by the Justice Department, and what really went on behind the scenes, the gulf between those two things, are something that we need have not fully come to grasp with. We were sold a bill of goods, and these new documents that I just spent time reporting on and reading and interviewing people about, they're just the beginning of a much larger reversal in the story. I think we're going to learn a lot more that our government didn't tell us the truth about, in the Russia collusion delusion that we all know now has boomeranged around. Now the investigators are the investigated. Today you have a little bit more reason why that is, when you read these documents. Now, keep in mind, very recently, Attorney General Bill Barr named a special prosecutor, one of his U.S. attorneys, to look at the conduct of the Justice Department and the FBI in pursuing Michael Flynn's. Similarly, President Trump said this week, and he's seriously considering giving Flynn a pardon before he is sentenced. Take those two things into account. We now understand why people think, at least a little bit better, we understand why people think Flynn should be eligible for a pardon or why there should be a special prosecutor. You had a Justice Department that was saying behind closed doors, we don't have a Logan Act case, we don't think Mike Flynn was lying, and yet portraying to the courts and the American public something entirely different. That ought to concern us all, as should the coronavirus. And when we come back from the break, as I promised, we're going to have two amazing reporters, Christine Dolan and Cheryl Atkinson, join us to talk about their amazing reporting on the front lines of the coronavirus scare. Uh, You're going to get the real facts about death rates, about emerging treatments, about all the things that may be confusing you. This is going to be a podcast section you do not want to miss. We'll be back after the commercial break. And remember, support our advertisers. That's how we put on this show every day. Folks, if you owe back taxes, fair warning, you're not going to like this. The IRS is mailing millions of pay up letters. Millions, I say. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. And as promised, I've got one of my great colleagues here, Christine Dolan of Just the News. She had an amazing story this week on these emerging drugs, drugs that have been used in prior outbreaks, whether it was malaria, AIDS, that are showing promise with coronavirus. This could be a little bit of a magic bullet in hospital, uh, hospital treating rooms and also in protecting medical workers who are on the front lines of this crisis. Christine, thank you for joining us. Oh, John, thank you. So tell us a little bit about what your research found and what medical professionals were telling you about these drugs.
2: Well, what we found is going back of when when the Chinese reported this pneumonia to the WHO, it is either four weeks after it had broken out or six weeks. So somewhere November, in that December timeframe, right? November, December timeframe. But right. they didn't report it to WHO, World Health Organization, until late the last couple of days of December 2019, but within less than 10 days, they uh, it, it went on a public data worldwide to the scientific researchers, and they determined that it was um, in the same family as MERS, right. Middle East uh, Respiratory Syndrome, as well as SARS, all right? right, so it's the same family, and then as a result of that, There's been a movement that's been underreported about all these tests that have been going on. And it's 300 clinical tests related to the Chinese outbreak. They actually moved people who had been infected in Wuhan to Thailand, and they tried some different tests on them. They broke it down to people who had been mildly infected, moderately infected, and severely infected. And they started testing some of the drugs that had been approved that had worked and failed, and combinations thereof from Mars and SARS. And this is what the the, the basic um, drugs that they're using now. There's a study that's uh, with uh, Gleed Sciences and the University of Nebraska in conjunction with the National Institute of Allergies and Infectious Disease, which is an arm of the National Institute right. of Health.
0: You have a front line uh, and
2: that And that drug has been – it kind of – it failed about 53% on Ebola, but it succeeded with MERS and SARS, okay? Wow. And then they tried um, – an anti-malaria drug, and another drug of the same family that's used for rheumatoid arthritis and lupus. And they have decided, and the Chinese came out with their 20 clinical studies on this, and there was an expert consensus in China where they said this particular drug should be given 500 milligrams a day, twice daily for 10 days, and that's for mild, moderate, and severe inflictions of this disease
0: so they've gone in in china ground zero they've gone beyond testing to recommending a protocol now that these uh antiretrovirals and other drugs are the right way to go about doing this, is that because they found results, people are getting better from it?
2: Yes, they, 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 it's not a cure, it's not the vaccine, but right. what they did see is once they had them in the hospital, they did have deaths, we all know that, but at the same time, when they combined some of these drugs from the past that had been approved, it, 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 they, saw, they saw results and they saw people. I think the, the latest numbers we have, and it's something like 67,000 of those in Wuhan right. alone have recovered. Okay, oh. so there's, there, there's something to this study, even though it's not totally conclusive and it's not totally a cure. They also took the HIV, what we call the HIV cocktail. It's known as uh, Calatra. Right. It's a combination of two different other drugs. Right. And they have found that when you combine that together with a flu drug, that they have seen results in that. And they found that in a, in a hospital in, in Bangkok.
0: People getting better.
2: People getting You're better. this
0: and it reverses the virus
2: it reverses the virus what they don't know and this is just because of the way the studies are going and and some of these people they don't know if there's going to be a second wave and they will all of a sudden get it back again
0: right but right now they are seeing recovery and then what about the south koreans i read something in your story that they also are beginning to see a regimen uh that they have confidence in and they're uh, other than the chinese i think they've been among the most successful in terms of uh, dealing with this so far uh, what what are they saying?
2: What what the what the Koreans did that's different from other places is, is that the Koreans did a lot of testing. They did a lot of tracking. They did a lot of analysis right. of where their patients were, and they have combined the HIV drugs, the, what we Coletra. call the cocktail, right. Caletra. Okay, they have they have found results from that they have found results from the malaria family drugs okay. they have found results uh, also from the chloroquine and the hydroxychloroquine but so those also are the with malaria zinc. Drugs, those right? are the malaria right? drugs but they've also found it with zinc they've got really? some progress with zinc so it's it's combining these different strands and we don't you know there's a question that's still out there is there only one strand for this or is there a secondary strand and where is it a We don't know the exact source. I mean, there's a lot of people thinking that it might be coming from wildlife that could be coming from other sources as well.
0: And there's even been a Chinese study or two that suggests that there might be two strands of this particular coronavirus, one more mild and one more severe, right? Right. Yeah. Absolutely. So uh, we're in America. We're just starting to get our waves of this uh, disease What is the optimism that these drugs bring to uh, all of us who are now sitting at home, biting our nails, worried that we might get this virus?
2: Well, I think the good news is uh, that we know two major things. We know that, and this has been sort of underreported, we know that there's been a lot of drug and pharmaceutical companies and research partnership behind the scenes. Okay, most people, you know, don't pick up, front page and look at the clinical studies that are they on the air. Not, now, yes. that's, that's what I had to sort through <laughs> no and remember my Latin from Catholic schooling. Um, but at the same time, we also know that the UK government has decided and put a ban, it has decided that these trials look so good that when they see the wave of the disease landing on their shores and now being reported with outbreaks, they have banned some of these same drugs right. that have found to be useful in the clinical studies.
0: So they don't want them leaving the country. They want them to stay in country to treat their own patients. So that's a sign that the Brits think that these regimens are also going to be beneficial to their patients, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So here in America, when do we see chloroquine? When do we see AIDS drugs maybe possibly being used as uh, a treatment regimen? Is there any indication when uh, that may enter our protocols here?
2: I don't think we have an answer for that right now. But, I mean, these same drugs, these anti-malaria drugs, I've taken off and on for decades whenever I've gone to Africa. So I know that they work. I know that they have been uh, made accessible to our military by the Department of Justice, uh, civilian and military. I know that when they put a uh, limited 10-day period on it, it's because if you go beyond for this particular type of anti-malaria drug, if you're on it, too, too long, long, you can get a little nutty and violent, okay? Yeah. So they don't want to do that. so but but they have seen results. In one case, they actually saw results. There was a drug that was tried in Korea with one of the doctors that was not I, I take that back, it wasn't Korea, it was China. When they brought in some of the other hospital assistants to Wuhan because they they had an overload um, of of the hospital staff, they brought in one of the leaders from the outside. And he actually was given Coletra when he got infected, and within 48 hours he was cured. So there's they have dramatic results on some of these cases, and in some of these cases, uh, it's a it's a mixture of the different drugs.
0: Uh, you had a doctor quoted in the article and it really caught my attention that this is a good approach that trying to invent something new from scratch is going to take six months to a year to fight this but because SARS MERS and Corona coronavirus uh, COVID-19 are very similar using things that worked in the past make more sense in the short term to try to get these things into the field uh, do doctors feel more optimistic that they're on the right path here now
2: They do think, yes, they they do think that. And and the sad part about this is, had the Chinese reported this in December, Let's say if it happened in November, if they had reported to the World Health Organization early December, December thirtieth, right? right. If they had reported earlier, it took less than a week to find out that this strain was actually part of SARS and MERS. So possibly they could have moved faster and doing these clinical tests because that's a lag of maybe four or five weeks, right there.
0: Wow. Well, uh, this is a great story. It's eye-opening for all of us who are sitting there worried. This, these are stories that give us optimism, just like the stories that Cheryl Atkinson did, looking at who's dying and who's not dying. Um, in this moment of hysteria, getting facts are really great. And you did a lot of work. I mean, you went through, what, 30 clinical studies? I went through more than that, John. Wow. I mean,
2: you kept on asking me to get this out and get this out. And I was, I was just kept on reading them because yeah. trying to figure out which study sounded good and which one was the most, you know, effective.
0: Well, what what you created was a really great body of research that boils this down. If you're sitting at home and you're wondering, is my doctor going to have any tools available if someone I know gets sick? I think you answered it in great fashion today. And so that's what we do at Just the News. And I I can't thank you enough, Christine, for what, what you did here. This is a real public service.
2: Thank you, John. All right.
0: We're going to commercial break. When we come back, Cheryl Atkinson will be joining us, and she'll be talking about the latest things that she knows on the front lines of the coronavirus fight. We'll see you in a few seconds. Folks, we're sponsored today by Donors Trust, the tax-friendly way to preserve your charitable giving. In times of crisis, Dotis Trust clients are using their funds to support charities helping their local communities while also using their giving account to simultaneously support think tanks and liberty-minded organizations that believe our constitutional rights shouldn't get lost in a time of emergency. Now is the time to take a closer look at Donors Trust and join their community of liberty-minded donors by opening a donor advised fund. Go to DonorsTrust.org slash JustNews for the ultimate survival guide to charitable giving and learn how a donor advised fund can preserve your ability to give to the charities you love. That's DonorsTrust.org slash JustNews. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break, and as promised, I have with me one of the great journalists in all of America, Cheryl Atkinson, the host of Full Measure on Sinclair Broadcast Group, and a regular contributing writer for uh, Just the News, and she's done some fantastic work for us, helping to sort fact from fiction and panic uh, with a series of stories that have looked at everything from death rates to best practices to uh, where this is likely to go. Cheryl, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, John. Thanks for having me.
0: And also, congratulations on your own podcast, which I'm addicted to and must listen to all the time now. It's a, it's a great addition to our lineup, and we really enjoy that.
1: The Cheryl Atkinson podcast. Thanks.
0: That's it. Absolutely. All right. Well, you've done, you have done yeoman's work here in helping us understand uh, in the middle of panic and alarmism what's true and what's not. And I wonder if you could go through, after all you've reported on the last week, what are some of your top lines? What are we learning about uh, coronavirus and who's most vulnerable, who's not as vulnerable, and how best we're going to treat it?
1: I think by all accounts, it is serious, as serious as we are being led to believe And I do think there's information that hasn't been released to us. I'm sure the government has done models that help them project numbers, particularly when it comes to respiratory infections that they feel like we might not have enough beds for if we don't slow down the spread um, and enough equipment for. Um, On the other hand, and not to minimize the serious nature of this, I think when averages for fatality rates, which I've looked at in depth, death rates, when averages are tossed out, it can be very misleading. Because it turns out, as people have heard, this is very lethal for older people, particularly sick people. I think the average age of death was 80 um, as of a couple of weeks ago. And I've been looking at each number right. as of yes, you know, up until recently. And there, you know, that's the scary number for older people. But conversely, there had been as of Monday this past week, no deaths in the young population under 40 and only one age 40 to 50 and someone with underlying health conditions, meaning that risk that sounds so high, which they're telling you about, up to 14% fatality for really old people, is in effect zero for young people right now in the United States. And I think that has to be known too, not that it can't impact young people, of course, but the point is if you are going to try experimental therapies that carry their own risk, you need to know is my child at greater risk of dying from this disorder, or do I want to take, you know, the the slight risk of maybe an experimental vaccine? These are things I think we all ought to have perspective on, and putting out this average for everybody of the death rate really doesn't reflect what's happening.
0: Yeah, and you had such a fantastic story over the weekend, uh, older and unhealthy, the first uh, inside look at the first 48 deaths in America from coronavirus. That was such an important story, because you did the division, and you showed where all these deaths were, almost predominantly in Washington, a little bit in California, and almost predominantly among the old or seriously unhealthy. And I think that was a great public service to um, help us sort some of our fears out as we as we understand it. Now, it seems like in the last couple of days, particularly Dr. Burks, who's the White House uh, coordinator, and she's sort of become an essential messenger, they're getting on message properly, which is that what we've learned enough about this uh, uh, virus now that it is the older people, and and the danger or the concern we have is that younger people might be silent carriers. So we're we're trying to get everybody to be responsible, and make sure that we don't carry it into to, into uh, the vicinity of elderly people. Does that seem to be the emerging uh, strategy as you watch the White House and as you do your own reporting?
1: Yeah, and people may not know that that's the government strategy with the flu. Yes. When some years ago, this was not widely reported. The government's definitive study found that flu shots had not been effective in the elderly after the billions that had received them. In fact, the death rate went up among the elderly. The top officials in the government told me at the time, I was working for CBS News, well, we can't stop giving flu shots to the elderly, even if they're no benefit, because they'll basically freak out because we've been telling them to get flu shots for so long. But we need to start giving flu shots to the carriers, to the elderly, which are young people, their grandchildren and even babies, and at the time, this was not recommended in that age group, and one official told me the tough part is going to be to convince parents whose children don't really need flu shots, because they're not at great risk of serious illness or death from it, the tough thing is going to be to convince parents to get their children flu shots, not for themselves, but for the older people. Well, within a year, flu shots was added to the recommended schedule for babies and children, and they didn't say that was why. They said they now say kids need it. But I'll tell you on the front end, it was because, you know, they determined that the older population need protection from the flu and the flu shots weren't working.
0: Yeah, that's uh, it's funny how much we're learning. And, and just today uh, at the at the briefing at the White House, Dr. Burke said, uh, if we get this right, if we tackle the coronavirus right and we set up these models and these new um, uh, systems that have been lacking maybe for 20 years, we've all talked about pandemics, but it doesn't look like the government got very far in its preparation we can revolutionize the way we, we address the next flu, such as drive-in flu clinics and other, um, other things like changes in the supply chain. Uh, those were pretty historic views by her looking outward and seeing this as a way of radically changing a system that had a lot of rhetoric, but perhaps not as much preparation. Uh, did you see that in your reporting?
1: Yeah, I do think there will be some changes that come from these dramatic measures we're taking. But I will also tell you that every time there is an infectious disease crisis, money on top of the annual money for That's emergency right. preparedness, in other words, it's already built into the budget that they should be prepared for any outbreak. This is supposed to not be reinventing the wheel. Nobody can anticipate something of this magnitude, but there are supposed to be systems in place. Billions have been put into funding on an ongoing basis so that we wouldn't have to start from scratch with funding when this happens. But it kind of seems like we do. And I spoke with this... Um, about this with Henry Quay, our congressman on the Appropriations Committee, sure. and he agreed. He said, why are we – we feel like we're reinventing the wheel when we're ongoing, on an ongoing basis, appropriating tons of money so that we aren't doing that when an emergency happens. I do think there will be changes this time, but I will say the billions we're adding, and I'm going through the budget right now, the emergency supplemental, you know, they're very nonspecific – certainly some people aren't beyond a money grab at a time like this cuz nobody wants to say no to the money sure. you know that could save lives but it's very nonspecific. it's doled out by the billions with no justification you know for what exactly it's going to be used for and i do i do wonder about accountability but i hope it does go into these systems so that we're better prepared each time.
0: We, we've seen this in many tragedies. You go back uh, a few years after the big tornado or a big uh, flood, big uh, hurricane, and you go back and you look at some of the FEMA expenditures that you know contractors and others did, and there's always that element of fraud and opportunism that sa- sadly creeps into the system. But I think the bigger question that uh, Burks was, was raising today is we spent billions of dollars over the last 20 years, and we're just developing the wheel today in the middle of the pandemic. Uh, somewhere along the way, it seems as though we need to break that cycle. In your experience, having covered government for so long, what what has to happen after? Let's say we get through this. What has to happen to make sure that we the next pandemic isn't seat of the pants like this one has been?
1: Well, I think the bureaucracy is so big, it's hard to have a streamlined plan. And states are independent in some respects with how they handle emergencies, yeah, although they point. do rely on federal funding. But um, as Congressman Quayar pointed out, there probably is a plan for what to do at the southern border when we have an infectious disease crisis like this. But if he doesn't know what it is, and if the people working at the border don't know how they're supposed to screen the tractors and trailers and railroad cars coming across a million people each day legally on the northern and southern border, if they don't know what the plan is, there may as well not be a plan. So I feel like there should be... Like you would have in a company, if there was an emergency, an email would go out and it would activate certain measures and processes that hopefully have already been predetermined. It seems like there should be something like that, at least at a starting point. Every disaster can be different, but certainly we can have a starting point that tells hospitals, including private hospitals that get our tax money, to build beds that may never be used, but suddenly they should be told to activate those beds that have been built with our money and we should have a count of how many beds are available, Um, you know, stuff like that really immediately. And and sadly, we're not good as a society at doing that. I worked at CBS for years where we talked about emergencies, like in the Washington, D.C. Bureau, if we were to have a bioattack, and, you know, anytime there was any little threat or problem, it was the same thing. We thought we had plans in place, but we were scrambling around, like reinventing the wheel each time as well.
0: It's uh, it is remarkable, and I know it's frustrating for everyday Americans or small businesses that are now closing down because the plan was sort of being evolved, as opposed to being able to pull it out of a book and execute it. Um, we in the next few weeks, with all the good reporting you've done, uh, where is this country headed for the next two weeks? Are we on a sort of a soft quarantine, or is it rolling quarantines? What what's going to happen to keep this disease from from spreading?
1: Well, I don't have a great handle on it because I don't think we have – I don't have access to the modeling they've done. Clearly, they, inside the government, have put out a death figure they don't want to panic people with, but that has alarmed them enough that they've taken these drastic figures um these drastic measures, and that figure may or may not come to pass, but they're operating on, on something, and I don't know what that is. And, you know, I think the best hint ca- came from President Trump saying we could be looking at taking some measures through August, that shows you that they expect this probably as we slow it down. These measures are not going to stop the spread, but people quarantining themselves or, you know, doing the social distancing, they hope will slow it down so that our health system is not overwhelmed at once. If you had let this peak naturally, it would be over faster. Right. But I think the perception is
0: the, the crisis consequences could be high, right?
1: Yeah, the, you know, of, of overloading the hospital system at once. So we're spreading it out. We're, we may make it last longer because of that, but I, they, they must feel it's a safer thing to do for our society, if not for the economy. And um, I don't have a great handle on it, but I think in two weeks, if these numbers are still on the upswing, going up exponentially in terms of depth, that's one thing I'm looking at, um, you know, we'll be looking at an extension probably. But if we start to think, see that, The numbers remain among the sick and the elderly with most of the deaths in Washington state, by the way, where most of the deaths had occurred until recently, they came from one nursing home. And I'm kind of surprised since they had so many cases that, you know, it didn't turn out that everybody at that nursing home got it and died. Uh, The workers didn't, it was just isolated to the, you know, the elderly sick people there. So that tells me is it as virulent and horrible among healthy people you know, it's been out there for weeks and weeks, and it has not resulted in deaths beyond this population in any great degree. So if it stays like that, maybe the administration will look very wise and smart and maybe avoided, you know, a worse disaster.
0: Yeah. In the meantime, I think the secondary patient beyond the humans, the humans, uh, citizens of America, is our economy, uh, which is in itself um, uh, undergoing a, a, a period of sickness. What do you think happens— um, and, and does, he, does the market stabilize, and, and are we doing the right things from your reporting uh, to, to kind of keep the economy going in a way that, that we don't have a in a hole that we can't dig our way out of later?
1: Well, I haven't dug into it enough. This is unprecedented. I'm not an economic expert, but I've asked some questions. And the best-case scenario, the one I'd like to think will happen, is that nothing will make up for what... What has just happened? I mean, there's just nothing to do, yeah, nothing that can be done, even putting a lot of, we'll be suffering from this for a long time. But the basic underlying economy, everybody says, was so strong. I think the stock market does bounce back. You know, I would like to think that we recover fairly quickly and then kind of, in a fairly healthy state, figure out how to help all the people that have been, you know, hurt in terms of jobs and pay and so on over the long term. But I think. The basic economy stays, you know, goes back to maybe not where it was, but a pretty healthy place. And I think Mnuchin seems to be a good person to be at the helm making some of these calls.
0: Yeah, he does seem to, whether it was the negotiation with um, Nancy Pelosi for the package or even what he said today about possibly uh, expediting checks to every American's home to try to keep cash in their hands, he does seem to be a stabilizing force. The markets seem to react to him uh, and even political figures seem to react to him as an honest broker in these negotiations. Uh, it's uh, it's fascinating to watch. Well, we are uh, so lucky, Cheryl. Anyone who's listened to your podcast or watched your full measure show or who's listening now, they they know what an honest broker you are as a journalist, even keel, just the facts. Uh, You acknowledge what you do know and you acknowledge what you don't know. And we're so lucky at Just the News and so lucky in America to have such a great journalist with us. So thank you for joining us today. And uh, we look forward to your next story. Well,
1: thank you. And right
0: back at you, John. All right. We'll see you soon. All right, folks, that wraps up another edition of John Solomon Reports, the podcast from Just the News. Will you get just facts and news? You just heard two amazing reporters, Cheryl Atkinson, Christine Dolan, both who write for us. You now know how good they are. They really signify the brand and the attempt that we try to make every day to do journalism with a neutral voice, with just facts, with just uh, honest uh, assessments and no opinion, no conjecture. Uh, We're really lucky to have them aboard. And uh, if you haven't had a chance, please listen to Cheryl Atkinson's podcast, the Cheryl Atkinson podcast, also available on Just the News. It is a wonderful, wonderful podcast. You get exactly what you got today, but in longer form. Uh, She's a remarkable journalist, and we're so lucky to have her as we are with Christine. On Thursday, we'll be right back here doing it again, and we'll have a big guest, House Minority Whip Steve Scalise, joins us for a discussion about all things coronavirus, about the elections, about uh, Russia, and, of course, about the Republicans' emerging health care plan that they want to introduce to Americans this summer and fall heading into the election. We'll have all of that for you on Thursday. Until then, be safe. Follow those guidelines by the CDC and the Trump White House, and your family will get through this crisis just like mine. We'll see you on Thursday. Hey, folks, have you heard of cancer-fighting foods? The American Cancer Society discovered diets rich in fruits and vegetables may actually lower your risk of cancer. Think about that for a second. That's really important. Hopefully, you hear this and run to the store for five servings of fruits and vegetables every day.